Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Ruth. Um, if you're using a pew Bible in, in front of you, uh, you can grab one of those, and I believe it's on 208, page 208 in that Bible. So during this Advent series, we have been uh, looking at uh, some of the women who are mentioned in the story surrounding them in the genealogy of Christ from Matthew chapter 1. And so last week we uh, uh, spent time looking at Rahab and the week before that at Tamar in Judah. And so this week we come to Ruth. So we'll be looking at the book of Ruth. You ever been to grab coffee with a friend or maybe to go eat and you're ordering at the counter and they say, I've, I've got you covered, right? I, I've got theirs. I'm going to get theirs. You probably will argue with each other for a moment and um, maybe give in or if you're stubborn, maybe not. But <clears throat> that can be a good thing. But have you ever felt the weight of if somebody doesn't pick up this tab, I'm not going to be able to do it. When Brandon and I were dating, that's my wife, her name is Brandon. <clears throat> when we were dating, she babysat for uh, a family who was wealthy. I remember one day calling her uh, and saying, hey, wh- what are you guys doing? She was babysitting. She said, we're in an elevator. I said, oh, great. Uh, you are at the mall? And she said, no, we're in their house. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so that's the kind of wealth I'm talking about. After we got married and we moved to New Orleans while I was in school, they were visiting the town, the city, one weekend and said, you guys should come out and meet us. So we drove over to where their hotel was and waited in the lobby, and I knew I was way, 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 way out of my league if we were going to do anything with them that day. We rode around and enjoyed some of the sights of the city, and we ended at a restaurant that was owned by Emerald Lagasse. And I was an absolute nervous wreck. Because when I say we didn't have any money, I mean we didn't have any money. So they're taking our order and their nine-year-old daughter orders turtle soup. I was like, wow, we've really grown up different. (laughs) And I'm thinking I'll have some ice (laughs) and a pat of butter. Maybe I could afford that. But we ordered, I ordered the cheapest thing on the menu, and at the end of the meal, he said, one check, and I was like, thank you, Lord, thank you, and it was with all sincerity that I meant that. Well, friends, we know what it's like to some extent. We've experienced something like that where we are exposed. Maybe it's to the elements of weather, right? out in the cold, in the rain, in the heat, to be exposed to to, to want to come under some shelter. Maybe it's we can't meet an obligation, such as what I just explained, and we don't have adequate cover. Well, the passage before us today points to the only sufficient cover in our lives. It points us to our ultimate refuge, a refuge that we need that is far greater than any need for refuge from weather or financial help, but refuge and safety from sin and from death. And so as we look together at Ruth, we will see this great refuge that the Lord has provided for us. So by way of starting, I would like to read from chapter 2. I want to begin in verse 8 and read 13, and then we'll back up and do a summary view of this entire book together. And there is a bet on how long this sermon will be. All right. Ruth chapter 2. Let's read from God's word in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowing to the ground. And she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, 
that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and you've come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And this is God's word. May he bless the reading of it, and now are looking into it further, and may he use it to build up his church for his name's sake. Well, this morning what I want to do is I want to walk through these next few chapters and we'll hit some high points. And so you guys can roll to the next slide because I don't think I have this on my, my notes exactly the same way. Imagine that. There is PowerPoint if it works out. Um, but we're going to walk through and, and, and look at each chapter. This will make it easier for us to walk through and take this in bite sizes. But chapter one, we'll look at Ruth's statement and just title it, Call Me Bitter. And in chapter two, we'll look at God's gracious providence that we just read about. In chapter three, we'll look at this theme of being covered and then in chapter 4, again, I've taken the statement from the women at the end of the, of the book, more than seven sons, and we'll look at this blessing of redemption, right? And so as we walk through, there'll be other slides as we go through each of these chapters that'll have some sub-points. I may not move in a linear fashion that matches my points. I just want you to see the high points that you can do. What, what we're doing here is almost, unless you want to be here for four hours, and I... We could do that, um, but what we're doing is we're, we're going we're gonna to hit the high points and we're going to do a sketch, if you will, and you can shade it in later as you do further study and think on these rich, rich themes from God's Word. All right, so first let's think about chapter 1 and call me bitter with Naomi's final words there at the end of the chapter. Well, first, if you look at chapter 1, let's look at verse 1, and the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and his two sons, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. So let's think first on this. First, we know the time period, right? This was in the day when judges ruled. This is a dark time in the history of Israel. This is a dark time in their history. If you go and you read the book of Judges, you can think on uh, this theme that reoccurs, especially in the beginning and the ending. And there was no king in those days, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now just think on that for a moment. Think about no law, no order, right? And everyone does what's right in their own eyes, where there is no accountability. That sounds like an absolute miserable context and circumstance in which to find ourselves. And it was true in the days of Judges. And so in the days of Judges, we, we see these cycles where God will raise up a judge. The, the people will, will find themselves under, under the judgment of the Lord, and they'll repent, and they'll raise up a judge to deliver them, and, and the cycle just continues, right? And so in the darkness of these days, we see this gleaming light, the people who've walked in darkness, on them has shone a great light. We see the spark of a light here in the story of Ruth as we zoom in and we look at Naomi and the surrounding circumstances with Ruth and Boaz. And so in the days when the judges ruled, now I'm going to, there will be two places as we walk through where there are two different primary understandings of what's happening. And this is one. I'm of the understanding that what happens with Elimelech and his wife Naomi and his sons, that what they've done, they should not have done. That what they've done by sojourning in the land of Moab, that they should not have done this. Some would say, I think they're okay to do this. They're just going to look for food. There's two things that, that we can look at. Well, actually, there's more than two, but several things. Let me point out a couple of things. First, they are, I, I would term this, they're in self-exile that they have exiled themselves out of God's land with God's people under God's rule and reign. 
right? This is exactly what the kingdom of God is. This is what it was. I'm borrowing from Graham Goldsworthy when I say that. This is what the kingdom of God is in Eden. It's Adam and Eve and God, uh, God's people in God's place under God's rule and reign. And they rebel from his rule and reign and they are exiled out of the, uh, out of the garden. And so we see this pattern, right, with Israel as God is establishing for himself through Abraham and the patriarchs, his people once again. And they're going to be under his rule and reign. He's going to deliver them into his place, the promised land. And that has happened in the book of Joshua. And here we see that as they are sinning throughout, if we look at this in, in, in Deuteronomy especially, and even in Exodus, immediately following uh, his deliverance of them from the Red Sea, they're tested three or four times. And as they're tested there, what happens? There's a lack of food and there's a lack of water. So you can think about there's no water, bitter water, and no food. And the Lord tests his people. And when he tests his people, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to turn to the Lord and trust in the Lord. And as they turn to the Lord and trust in the Lord, he provides for them. So what I'm understanding that Elimelech and his family are doing, instead of turning to the Lord and looking to the Lord and trusting him, they're trusting self and they're leaving and they're saying, we'll figure this out on our own. And so I understand what they're doing to be a self-exile. They're leaving God's covenant provision of land in the covenant community. Yes, there's difficulty, but we must, and we could stop and make a lot of applications through this, trust the Lord as his people even in the midst of difficulty. And all God's people said, the Lord is either disciplining his people or he's teaching them to trust him. And Elimelech, Naomi, they leave. And we see in verses 3 through 5, eventually through this time, that they die, right? Elimelech and the two sons. So let's look, pick up there in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And they took Moabite wives, which they should not have done. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Now, the term sojourn, this is another indication. The term sojourn would indicate a short period of time, but now notice how long they've been there. Ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that, the women was left, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is an incredibly difficult situation that I am not making light of at all in the least as we move through. Right? What Naomi has experienced is incredibly difficult, right? They've left because there's difficulty, and as they've left, they've walked from difficulty into more difficulty as she's lost her husband and then lost her two sons. And then, when we pick up in verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country, to, from the country of Moab because she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So what's driving her back? Food. Right? There's food there. So they leave out. In verse 8, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal, deal kindly with you as you have done, uh, dealt with me and, and with the dead. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will not return with you. Uh, we will return with you, with your people, to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons? Right? She said, I can't offer you anything. Turn back, my daughters. Verse 12. Go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say, I hope to have, even if I had a husband this night and bore sons, would you wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now notice what she's saying. Go back. Go back. I have nothing to offer you. Really? What about the God of Israel? She has nothing to offer them? Verse 15. She said, see your sister-in-law here. This is Naomi speaking to Ruth. See your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. That's a heartbreaking statement. 
return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. That is probably one of the most moving statements in the Bible. What Ruth does is make a vow to Naomi. Notice what she says. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts us. This is, this is something that is read at weddings for its beauty and, and, and the strength of this vow. But this is Ruth to her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law said, return. And she says, nope, your God is my God. What do we see here? I mentioned it two weeks ago, but, but really what we see here in, in Ruth is a commitment of entering into the covenant people. It's like Rahab last week that she has believed in the God of Israel. And here Ruth the same is saying, nope, I am committed. I am, I am, I am leaving and forsaking my people, my gods, and I am turning to the God of Israel. And this is exactly what Boaz picks up on in chapter 2 that we just read a moment ago. And so here she says, I, I will not leave, let nothing part. And then look at verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. How cold. It's kind of like, all right, fine, I give up. I mean, that's one of the most beautiful things that somebody could ever say to someone else. And she's like, fine, you win. She says no more. This noble vow that Ruth makes. This beautiful vow. And here we have Naomi saying, okay, let's go. Look at verses 19 through 22. So the two of them went out until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, and the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Empty? Again, we're not seeking to make light of what Naomi has gone through. I'm not seeking to, to trivialize her suffering at all. She says, call me bitter, call me Mara, which should make us think back to Exodus 15. And her suffering was indeed real. The loss of the spouse would be tragic enough, but the loss of two children unbearable. Yet, has she returned empty? No. Not so, Naomi. You have Ruth who has vowed to never leave you or forsake you. You have Ruth who is with you. Brothers and sisters, often in our suffering we are not honest about our circumstances. She says she went away full. I think it was suffering that drove her to go away to start with. The lack of bread. And now she says, I've come back empty. Often in our suffering, we're not honest about the circumstances and what's going on. Often we're, we're blind to the graces that the Lord has provided, even in the midst of extreme difficulty. Brothers and sisters, another point of application, we'll come back to the uh, theme of suffering in a moment, but another point of application that we should make before we walk away from this section of the book is we, you and I too, will be tempted to adopt worldly wisdom and forsake God's plan. This is exactly what Elimelech and Naomi did. Similarly, Orpha saw with the eyes of the world and Ruth saw with the eyes of faith. Orpah says, I'll go back. Ruth sees with the eyes of faith and says, I'm committed to the Lord and to his people. What about us? What about us? What about times that we are tempted not to see with the eyes of faith, but to see with worldly wisdom as we encounter difficult situations? Difficulty in marriage, the world says it's all about happiness and self-fulfillment. The Bible says it's about denying yourself and exalting Christ in your marriage. What about when we have others in our life who are coming around us, maybe in a situation of suffering, and they're trying to show us and point to us the evidences of God's grace in the midst of that? 
The world says, who are they to get into your business? They should mind your own business. The Bible says they should come along beside you and walk side by side as we seek to live a life worthy of the calling of which we've been called. Philippians 1.29. The Bible says that they should warn you every day as long as it's called today so that you will not be deceived by the heart, uh, and your heart will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Bible says that they should come along beside you and they should seek to encourage you and stir you up to love and good works. But the world says, you can do it on your own. You don't need anybody else's help. What about an evangelism? <clears throat> the world says, let each one go his own way and seek what's best for them. The Bible makes it very clear that seeking what's best for us that the world has to offer only ends in judgment. Yet we should be willing to endure awkwardness to tell someone about Christ and the redemption that can be found in him. Over and over we could offer a multitude of examples of where we will be tempted to think with worldly wisdom and make our decisions in the midst of difficulty and hardship. Yet God's word calls us to see with eyes of faith and even in the midst of our hardships to turn to him and say, Lord, what are you teaching me? If anything else, teach me to trust you more. Friends, let's look at chapter 2. And let's see this gracious providence that the Lord provides. In chapter 2, as, as we pick up, look at, at verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So here the narrator, before we're introduced to Boaz, is going to give us a little bit of information about him, right? That he's, a, he's a relative. He's a worthy man. He's of the same clan. His name is Boaz. Now look at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said, Go, my daughter. Who's taking the initiative here? It's Ruth. There's a good chance that Naomi would prefer that she not even come back with her. Because she would just be seen as a liability. One more mouth to feed, right? But here we actually see that it's Ruth who's taking the initiative. Ruth is the one who could not be any more vulnerable in this situation. She's a foreigner. She's a woman who's a widow who is as far on the margins as you can be. She knows no one. Naomi knows people. But it's Ruth who takes the initiative. It's Ruth who says, let me go. She very well could be so familiar with God's word that she recognizes that there are covenant provisions for those to come and to glean in the fields. She says, let me go and let me glean among the reapers. And so I just want you to notice that, that, that as Naomi returns and says, I, I have nothing, she has Ruth, and Ruth is the one taking the initiative and saying, let me get out there and see if I can't provide for us. Now, verse 3. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, this is beautiful. If we were to read into the mood of the text, and we could see this in, in, in the Hebrew as well, what's happening here is this, this happenstance happened to have it. She ended up in the field of, of Boaz. The writer is saying this is no coincidence, right? This is providence. This is providence. This is the Lord ordering her steps. Brothers and sisters, we could just stop for a moment and, and be humbled by this, that, that you and I might be willing to work and work hard, and you and I might be willing to, to go out and take risks but the reality is, it's the Lord who orders our steps, every one of them. And there is nothing that you have that you have not received. And that even here, with Ruth taking initiative, had the Lord not ordered her steps, and in this sweet providence allowed her to happen upon the field that belonged to Boaz, who happens to be a kinsman, and a noble man. Things could have ended up 
incredibly difficult. When I was in high school, I got into cycling and first mountain biking. And, and so the whole family ended up getting into it. But anyway, as a teenager, my bike had an issue one day and I needed to uh, take it to the repair shop, but I didn't want to. <clears throat> and I asked my dad about fixing it and he didn't have time to fix it. And he said, I don't know that I can fix that. It might be beyond what I can do. He said, just take it to the bike shop. I was like, I don't want to go to the bike shop. Why don't you want to go to the bike shop? Because those guys just treat me like a dumb kid there, right? They don't treat me with respect there. I don't, I don't want to go there. He's like, look, you need to put your bike in the, in the back of the truck. You need to drive to that bike shop and have them fix it. Because it was warranted. It would have been free, right? Okay, Dad, I'll do it. So I put my bike in, in the back of my truck. I drove it to the bike shop. They met me in the parking lot, helped me unload my bike. They were so nice to me. I was like, what is happening, Right? They fixed my bike, got it squared away. I went and rode on the trails, and I went home. My mom said, how did it go? I was like, it went great. They were super nice. She's like, your dad called before you got there. Huh. Right? See, dad had gone before me. Brothers and sisters, it's much more true with our Heavenly Father. He goes before us. He orders our steps, and he sets things for us. And we reap the grace of our Heavenly Father. And here we have the same with Ruth. She's happened into Boaz's field. And as we read a moment ago, we see that he is a noble man, a worthy man there in verse 1. We're told that he's related, a kinsman, a kinsman redeemer, a goel. And so here we will also notice that as he arrives on the scene, and Boaz came from Bethlehem, verse 4, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Friends, I just want you to notice for a moment that, that, that what we're seeing here in this interaction is that Boaz truly is a noble and worthy man. The, the interaction of, of, of his address to those who work for him in the field and their response, and the Lord bless you. As my professor, Jim Hamilton, says, in the field, sometimes you'll meet some of the most hardened men, right? And they may have a pious boss, but they will, if that boss is not a man of integrity, they will call it out. And there will be no true respect for that man. But here, what do we see with Boaz? We see that they truly respect him. As Boaz calls out, the Lord bless you, and their answer is, then the Lord bless you. Because the, the result here is as the Lord blesses Boaz, he's a blessing to those under his charge, right? Which is exactly the way the Lord has called you and I to exercise any authority that we have. That it should be for the blessing and the flourishing of those who come after, who, who work under our charge and not a blight to them. And so here we see the same with Boaz, that he truly is a noble man. And then as he continues on and, and he asks about Ruth, right? And he asks about her. And then as we saw the interaction that we read a few moments ago as we began our time, in the interaction with Ruth as well, and his looking out for her and his caring for her, we see the nobility and the valor of this man. And then I want you to notice at the same time as he makes provisions for her. If you read in this chapter, we won't for the sake of time. But if you were reading this chapter, you'll see that he tells them, do not embarrass her, right? He's recognizing that she's a foreigner. She doesn't know all of our customs. She doesn't know all that, that you and I know. And so don't, don't embarrass her for that as he looks out for her. And he, he tells them to, to, to look out for her to make sure that she's provided for. They offer water from the vessels, food uh, as she eats as well. And he even tells them, don't, glean, don't uh, reap as heavily as you normally would. Even leave more so that she can glean more from the field. And then you can notice too at the same time, this is just a beautiful thing. You can see in Ruth in her response that we read in, in verse 10 a few moments ago. Let's look at verse 10 of chapter 2. And notice what she says. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Notice the humility in Ruth. She doesn't say, you owe this to me. You ought to give me this, right? What we're seeing is, is godly character. Godly character in Boaz and looking out, and godly character in Ruth and the humility and saying, I, I don't deserve this. 
Thank you for this grace that you're giving to me. Verse 13, she says it again. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me, spoke kindly to me, though I am not one of your servants. And then we come to the end of the chapter and we see that she returns home. And she returns home, look at verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. She worked hard. And she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and she went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw it, what she had gleaned. And she brought it out. And she gave her food that she had left over after being satisfied. That's what she ate at lunch. And after her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and she said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young women until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her, My daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest you be assaulted in another field. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So here we see that, that there is some beginnings of, of, of the breaking of Naomi. Of here as she, she cries out, of this mercy that has come from the Lord, blessed be the Lord, by whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead, in verse 20. And then she notes to Ruth that Boaz is a kinsman and he's a redeemer of theirs. And then we see that they finish the harvest. Is grace beginning to melt Naomi's heart? Chapter 3. Covered. Covered. Now, if you read chapter 3, what happens here is somewhat bizarre, right? And this is very foreign to us. And there are several different, there's a myriad of interpretations of what's happening here. There's two primary ones. The first is that this is something that we're just so foreign to us that we don't understand, but Ruth is just going and making the plea at Naomi's direction, right? Really, in a sense, for Boaz to answer the prayer that he prayed, the blessing there in chapter 2. The God under whose wings you have come to take refuge, right? May you be blessed. Second, still keeping with that, that's what's happening But I have been more and more inclined over the last few months as I've studied this book, and I've preached this several times, but I'm inclined to think that Naomi is somewhat trying to manipulate and expedite things. And I think that her plan is really putting Ruth exposed and in a difficult situation. She sends him to the threshing floor. Now, if you think back to Judah, and you remember what Tamar did as they were going to shear the sheep, right? And there seems to be this, these parallels that, that when the men are away and they're working, there's a higher likelihood of something immoral happening. And that was Tamar's plan, and this seems to be Naomi's plan as well. That she sends her out there, and she says, Go. And make sure that it's after he's eaten and he's drinking and he's satisfied and he lays down, right? And go uncover his feet and lay at his feet. And then you'll see at the end, that, notice what he says. Verse 14. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose when no one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. So the implication from Boaz is, it is not good that you're here at night like this. And we don't want anyone to know that you came here that they would get the wrong idea. Right? Now, I think that it's clear that Ruth and Boaz completely retain their integrity and do what's right. 
But it seems that Naomi is seeking to expedite a plan and hatch a plan that will lead to some sort of maneuvering or manipulation that would get Boaz to do what they want him to do, which is become the kinsman redeemer and marry Ruth. Now, as you move forward, if you disagree with me, I'm completely fine with that, right? But as you move forward, notice there's a couple of things that happen. Verses 6 through 13. So when they went to the threshing floor, so she went to the threshing floor, that would be Ruth, and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of the grain, then she came, softly uncovered his feet, and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman laid his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, I think that Ruth is asking him to answer this blessing of prayer that he pronounced over her there in chapter 2 that we read in 10 through 13. And she's saying, will you be the answer to this prayer? If we've come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord Almighty, would you be the instrument by which he answers, uh, by which he provides for us? In verse 10, he said, may the Lord, uh, he says, excuse me, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, and I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. He tells her to remain for the night. Now what we're seeing here is we're seeing the integrity of Boaz that is retained. And he says, he, he, he pronounces on her blessing because of her, her nobility and her honor and that everyone knows of her reputation and what she has done for Naomi. And he says, yes, I am a redeemer, but there is one nearer than I. There is a redeemer who is in line before him. And so what Boaz says is he says, hey, you, you and I, we, we must do this right and we must go to him first. And so he sends her away. As, as like we said, after mourning, because he cares for her safety, he's not going to send her back in the night, but he also has her rise in the morning and go back <clears throat> while it was still early in the morning, as we just read, so that no one would know that she came to the threshing floor. And he gives her food as kind of like a, a payment, an engagement ring, if you will, to say, hey, I am committed to this. And then what I want you to notice that is remarkable and what Boaz does that even uh, shows you more of his character is that he doesn't say there is a redeemer nearer than I and you must go and ask him first. He says, I'm going to take up your cause. I'm going to be your advocate. I will settle this and settle it now in the morning. Think about that. Think about the last time you were on the phone with insurance with a cell phone contract, with something, and you had to play phone tag for weeks on end trying to settle something, didn't you just wish that somebody said, say, you know what, I'm going to figure this out for you, and I'll have you an answer, and we'll have this settled by, by the end of business today. The hallelujah chorus would play in the background, would it not? And somebody would take up your calls and get it fixed, right? Now, this is so much weightier than that. And Boaz is not going to leave Ruth to do it as a foreigner on the margins. He says, I'm going to take up your cause and I'll get this settled now. And if he won't redeem you, then I will be your redeemer. And so that's where we pick up there in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we see this blessing of more than seven sons. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now, you need to know that when he says friend, literally in the Hebrew is, hey, Mr. So-and-so, right? Hey, Mr. So-and-so, have a seat. That's important. We'll come back to it. He says, turn aside, friend, sit down. And he turned aside, and he sat down, and he took ten men, some of the elders of the city, and he sat down here. And so they sat down. And then, the redeem, and then he said to the Redeemer, so first, this is a legal proceeding. He takes 10 men to sit down. They're at the gate. This is where they do business. They have the, meet, the uh, witnesses of the elders. And so this is an official legal proceeding that he is taking and engaging in. Verse 3, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, and she's selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders and my people, and if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will, but if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So the man says, done, I'll redeem it. Why? Well, he can buy this field, he can redeem it, and then he can have the profit from the, from the crops that come off of it. It's a good business deal for him. He says, I'll redeem it. Verse 5, then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now what's happening, there's some sort of form of leveret marriage that's going on here and that there is to be a redemption of this person and that they are to marry Ruth as well so that there can be a perpetuation of the name of the dead, right? Because if not, then Elimelech's clan is done. Their family's done. There is no heir and it's as though they are being blotted out. Their land gone, their name gone from the promised land that God has given to them. And so this inheritance cannot go forward. And the Redeemer, once he learns this, he says, "Mm, I can't do that. Make money off the crops I'm good with. Take a wife, extra mouths to feed, have kids that aren't really my kids for my own inheritance to push forward an inheritance. That's going to impair my own inheritance. That's going to tie up more than what I want. I can't do it. You do it. Now, here's the key. Indigwid says it's significant that we're not told his name because this man acts in self-interest, right? He's worried about his inheritance and his name going forward and we don't even know his name. He's just Mr. So-and-so. Boaz acts completely selflessly and says, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what's right. And I'm going to think about others. It's the character that we saw in chapter 2 that's just paying forward and continuing on in his life here in chapter 4. And he says, I'm willing to do what is right for the sake of what's right and think selflessly instead of selfishly. And we know his name. His name is Boaz. This is Matthew 10.39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Boaz says, I will act selfishly. And with integrity, he becomes the redeemer. In chapter, in verse 13, we're told that they marry and the Lord gives them a child. And what is absolutely striking to me is how this book ends. It ends with the focus and the attention on Naomi. And can I just tell you, before we move forward, if you're thinking, who do I identify with in this story? Let me just help you. You and I are Naomi. We do nothing. We get everything. Notice what happens. So they marry, and then the women said to Naomi, Verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in all Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than seven sons, has given birth to him. That's a remarkable statement. Think about that. She said in chapter 1, I am too old to bear sons. Here, she says, I'm empty. I have nothing. Ruth has made this commitment. And now the women are proclaiming, Naomi, Ruth, who the Lord has provided for you, she is greater to you and more to you than seven sons. This number of perfection that if you could even have seven, they would not even amount to Ruth and the blessing that she has been to you. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, His name, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. A couple things I want us to notice. Here we see Naomi claiming in, in, in chapter 1 that she is empty. Brothers and sisters, in chapter 4, she's full. She's full. Naomi was empty and ignoring the fact that she had Ruth. But now because of Ruth, who was more than seven sons, she holds a promise in her lap. A promise of blessing. And as a result of this, a king is coming. Notice this genealogy. The genealogy that we're given in verse 18. Now there are gener- now these are the generations of Perez. Now who is Perez? Matthew 1, 3. He's the son of Judah and Tamar. He fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. And Ram fathered Amenadad. And Amenadad fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Now who is Boaz? Matthew 1.5, he's the son of Salmon and Rahab. Could it be that Boaz had a special place in his heart when he saw this Moabite refugee, knowing himself that his mom was a foreigner of the people of God who had found refuge in, their, in, in God's house? And here Boaz has taken this and had this heart. He's a noble man. And the Lord has used him. And how does it move forward? Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Obed is the grandfather of David, whose line is the true and better line for the true and better Boaz and the true and better David, the Redeemer King of Jesus, who is to come. Friends, as we think on this passage this morning, we need to see that Boaz took up Ruth's cause and he acted on her behalf at his own expense. And maybe you're here this morning and you, you hear that and you think, wow, the selflessness of that of someone else just advocating and taking up the cause and, and, and taking on the expense to help someone else. Do you need someone like that in your life? The reality is, is that you need someone better than Boaz. The reality is, is that one day you're going to stand before a holy God and you're going to give an account for your life. And when you stand before him, you will either stand exposed or you will stand covered. And if you stand before him and you seek to give an answer for your own life of your own initiative and say, this is what I've done. Look at my moral record. You will be found wanting. If you stand before him and you say, I charted my own path, I didn't get into the religion, I just did my own thing, you will be found wanting and you will be exposed before a holy God who created you and who lays claim on you and who you must answer to whether you want to or not. You have no choice in the matter. You are his. And because of our sin and our rebellion against him, we are exposed and we deserve his righteous judgment. But the good news is that there is one better than Boaz who took up your cause and he's provided for you at his own expense and his name is Jesus. That in Christ, God is both just and the justifier through his life, death, and resurrection. That Christ came and he lived the perfect life that you and I could not, would not live, yet went to the cross and he took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. He took up our case and he advocated for us and he lived for us and then he went and he died for us at his own expense so that you and I could be redeemed and could know salvation. This is the good news of the gospel and the call this morning is repent and believe. You and I are Naomi and we need a redeemer and that redeemer is Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Those of you who say, yes and amen, our Redeemer is Jesus. Let us for one moment stand and be amazed by God's grace once again. In this story of redemption, we see a greater story of redemption. Naomi left God's blessing. She encountered plight in Moab, and that was her experience. She blamed God, but God was gracious to her. And provided a redeemer. That's our story. 
That's our story. Last, can you relate to Naomi? Can you relate to her in chapter one in her suffering? Are you suffering? Are you experiencing difficulty and hardship in your life? Do you feel like saying sometimes, or do you feel like you're living in a season where you're saying, just call me bitter? You're suffering like Naomi. Is this real? And it's probably really difficult. It may almost be crushing. Yet Naomi was not completely empty. She had Ruth. And through Ruth and Boaz, God brought redemption. And she held the promise of Obed in her lap. Christian, no matter what kind of suffering you are experiencing, you are not completely empty. The promise that Naomi held in her lap has come into full bloom and you hold it in Christ Jesus in your heart. You are his and he is yours. And God is faithful to bring things from Obed forward to Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He is sure to bring the fullness of that promise in making all things new and setting all things right in Christ Jesus. As we saw in our Advent reading this morning, cling to Christ. And as we prepare to take communion, let me read you this quote from B.B. Warfield on our great Redeemer. There is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to the Christian heart than Redeemer. It gives, it gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure this salvation for us. The cross. Before our eyes and our hearts, filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. And you can rest assured, if it's such great expense, God brought redemption, he will bring that redemption to its fullness and conclusion in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it this morning to fill our hearts with joy, with wonder for your grace and your redemption in Christ. Father, we pray that, that maybe it would humble us where we need to be humbled, sober us where we need to be sobered, encourage us and build us up where we need encouragement to be built up. That would set fast and firm in front of us to hope in Christ once again as we've been tempted all week by the lesser hopes of the world, and we have foolishly clamored for them and, and, put our, and rested our weight on them. Oh, they're so hollow, insufficient, crumble. They're brittle. But oh, the, the solid rock of Christ, the indestructible, unsinkable hope of Jesus. Let us rest on him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.